Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So thank you very much, Hannah, for the invitation, for the kind introduction, and thanks to the Thomistic Institute. Um, if you have trouble hearing me, uh, my voice is uh, a little on the weak side, um, but uh, please, you know, throw something at me. So um, when I teach pathology, biochemistry, biological sciences, if you spend any time uh, trying to define things like health and disease or life or anything like that, what you get is a lot of eye-rolling. I think students consider such exercises to be boring and silly. Now, this is in contrast to teaching the humanities, um, which I also do. And um, there, a lot of time, for example, is spent on defining what is a text. Okay? Now, um, whether such exercises are truly boring or silly is not my point. My point is that such exercises are, above all, futile. Why is that? Now, as is my want, um, I tend to uh, um, quote James Joyce a lot. And these are, this is the first of a few um, citations, quotes from James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, these are two episodes from episode three called Proteus. And um, Joyce didn't call it that. Everyone else calls it that. Uh, Stephen Dedalus is a would-be writer. And he's one of the protagonists of the novel. And he's walking along Sandy Mount Strand. He's thinking about wildly diverse topics. Um, and he's thinking about Aristotle and art. He's thinking about the year he spent in Paris. Uh, quite a few things. And at one point, he encounters the following. A bloated carcass of a dog lay lolled on bladder rack. Okay, so now, um, a little bit later, much of this chapter uh, is about Stephen Dedalus's developing theory of art, and there's a lot of literary associations that we don't have time to go into, um, but um, the reason I'm showing it is because a lot of the chapter is about the juxtaposition of opposites. Okay, so immediately after this, he sees um, this, a point live dog 
grew into sight, running across the sand, sweep of sand. Lord, is he going to attack me? Respect his liberty. Sit tight. From farther away, walking shoreward, across the crested tide, figures, too. He is running back to them. Who? Now, Stephen Dedalus, like the author James Joyce, was afraid of dogs and didn't much care for them. The dog runs back to his master, and it happens to be one of two cockle pickers who are, you know, getting cockles from the sea on the strand. And um, the dog, on the running back to his master, sniffs the dead dog, then runs, then urinates, and then runs back to uh, his master. And the master scolds him for sticking his nose into the dead dog. Okay, now, um, we're going to focus on this one particular aspect of the passage, which is the juxtaposition of opposites. And here, Joyce contrasts life and death. Now, the point is obvious, and yet maybe not entirely obvious. The obvious part is that Stephen Dedalus instantly recognizes two dogs, one dead, one alive, as anyone would. As a species, we have evolved to know the difference between predators and food. Um, in similar ways, we can tell the dif difference between, for example, health and disease. Now, the non-obvious part is that we are curiously um, inept at defining these terms. Um, life or death, health, disease. Now, here is an attempt from Wikipedia, and you have to admire their bravery. It's not especially bad definition, but you'll notice that this so-called definition lapses into one of the great sins of defining, defining by giving examples. It's not a good definition if you have to say like this, that, and the other. It's circular. You're trying to define the term, and then you're using the term to give examples. It's circular reasoning. Okay? Now, um, I don't want to spend too much time on it because that's a whole nother lecture, um, but um, you find exactly the same thing when you try to define disease and health. Okay? Disease is, here's an example from Merriam-Webster. You can go to medical dictionaries. doesn't matter. Get the same thing. Disease is a loss of health. Health is the, law, is the absence of disease. Round and round in circularity. Okay, it's a very curious thing. All right. Uh, circularity. The other um, similar sin of circularity is, again, giving examples. Disease is this, that, or the other disease. Okay, fungal infections, bacterial infections, cancer, heart disease. But you're not really defining anything if you're doing that. Okay, now, <clears throat> there's an even deeper problem here, and this is the one that I asked and um, Hannah quoted, do biologists, can biologists, believe in the existence of life? And I have to explain what I mean, with, uh, mean by that, and in order to do that, we have to take a little bit of a detour through some scientific history. First, let's consider this example. Charles II of England, he went to his royal society and he asks, 
why is it that a dead fish weighs more than a living fish? And they came up with some very ingenious examples, a lot of them having to do with the nature of the soul. Until he said, well, actually, it doesn't. All right? You know what happened to Charles II? He went into exile, was driven into exile and died in exile. Uh, this wasn't the reason why. There were other reasons. Um, but um, this incident, I got it from this article by Robert Pasnow, who is a great current uh, contemporary Thomistic scholar. And it was an article called Why Not Weigh the Fish? And it was, um, it was a spirited defense of what philosophers do. And I would also add people who study great literature do. Um, it is good to weigh the fish sometimes, but the question is whether that's enough. Um, he was answering the question, why bother with all these philosophical questions? Why not just weigh the fish? And sometimes it is indeed valuable to get measurements, and I do this myself, I believe in it, and uh, that's not the problem. The question is whether it's enough. Now, our digression into scientific history, um, the next part will be to consider these two giants of 19th century experimental medicine, Claude Bernard and Louis Pasteur. Um, they were, as we would now say, frenemies. Um, they respected each other, they admired each other, but they also fought a lot. Um, Louis Pasteur, of course, is now the more famous of the two, but um, they both made very great contributions, I would say roughly equal. Louis Pasteur found vaccines against rabies and against anthrax. He discovered the chemical phenomenon. He was a chemist. He discovered the chemical phenomenon of optical activity working for the wine industry. It's an interesting story. He also invented the process of pasteurization, and he was a proponent of the germ theory, what causes diseases like plague and rabies and anthrax germs, and you couldn't see them at the time, so he proposed this as a theory, and he was also a vitalist. Okay, and I'll, I'll say more about that. Um, but I'll say he, he believed that the living world operated with its own chemistry that differed from the chemistry of the inanimate, non-living world. Now, Claude Bernard discovered the role of the exocrine pancreas, you know, making all those enzymes. He discovered normal glycemia. It used to be thought that only diabetics have sugar in their blood. That's not true. He discovered and really developed the concept of homeostasis. He wrote a great book called um, Introduction to Experimental Medicine, and he was a fierce opponent of vitalism. Now, the beginning of the end of vitalism can probably be dated to 1827 or 1828, when this man, Friedrich Wohler, synthesized a so-called living compound, urea, from inorganic, non-living chemicals, ammonium chloride and silver cyanate. Um, and that was an unexpected result. Now, um, fast forward a few years, um, and in particular, the process that Pasteur and Bernard argued about with respect to vitalism was fermentation. Pasteur said, you need living cells to do fermentation. 
Um, Bernard said, no, you don't. And they argued about that. But on that topic, at least, this man, Eduard Buchner, no umlaut in his name. There's another Buchner who invented the Buchner funnel. He has an umlaut in his name. Um, anyway, he was a German chemist and at the time called a zymologist. We would now call him an enzymologist. Um, he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1907, and he showed definitively that a cell-free extract of yeast cells called pressed juice was able to ferment sugar. No cells at all are required. And this was, of course, a crushing blow uh, to vitalism. So, vitalism is dead, at least certainly in its 19th century form, but it poses a problem for us. Pasteur's dilemma was this. What if chemistry is chemistry and physics is physics, period? Which it is, by the way. What then is life? Is it just a more complicated form of chemistry? Is that all it is? In which case, what's special about it? Is anything special about it? Um, and we can ask these questions. Do biologists who now are reductionists and it's all about mechanism and chemistry and chemistry is chemistry and physics is physics, period, can biologists, do biologists believe in the existence of life? And if so, how do we define it? What was Pasteur's error, and what, if anything, did he get right? Now, um, I think this um, brings me to what I consider the heart of the problem, and it's going to be my contention that biology and medicine not only are compatible with, but need a concept of the soul. Um, so let's see if we can do any better at defining what we mean by soul um, than we did with the trying to define life or health. For I can tell you that most modern scientists don't even believe in the existence of the soul. Now, part of our problem, I think, is that we speak English. Okay, uh, etymology, there are no cognates for the word soul. The etymology, perhaps it comes from the proto Germanic word saiwaz, which means a kind of a lake or a sea, and perhaps that was conceived of as the dwelling place of souls back in the 8th century or something. And so it's no wonder that the Englishman David Hume was inclined to think he didn't have one. Now, if we spoke Latin, if only we spoke Latin, things would be easier, because we could then define anima, the soul, as that thing which makes a living thing alive, animata, okay? But the word soul, I think, has given rise to a lot of not only bad science, but bad metaphysics. And here is an example of it. Um, this is an effort by Dr. Duncan McDougall of Haverhill, Massachusetts. In 1907, he proposed to weigh the soul. And the way he went about it was this. I mean, it sounds kind of comical now, but it wasn't at the time. He had patients who were about to die of consumption, was then what was called, uh, what TB, tuberculosis, was called consumption. So he, on their deathbeds, he suspended their deathbeds on a sensitive scale. And then as they died, he measured the loss of weight um, as they died. And that was supposed to be 
the weight of the sole. And he, it came out to, I think, something like um, two ounces. I don't remember the number he got. Um, the, the, the science was bad, really, really bad. And that's part of the problem. But I would say that's the least of his problem. The big problem is bad metaphysics. He made a category error, and I'll explain what I mean. Well, let's consider first what are the arguments against vitalism. First of all, Pasteur's um, error was to try to posit a negative. He said what science can't do, what cells, um, cell-free mixtures can't do, that's always a logical as well as, that's a very risky thing to do. Um, so that's the, first, that's the first problem with it. So in general, one can't prove negatives, and it's a mistake to ask questions that way. The second problem with vitalism is the criticism of vitalism is that it is contentless. Theodore Schwann, who you may know as one of the uh, people who developed the cell theory in animals, he said a force is a force only if you can measure it. Well, you can't measure the soul necessarily, um, and you can't measure the life force necessarily. Um, so here's an illustration. So here's Julian Huxley, um, who was uh, the uh, grandson of Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley. And he said this about uh, something called Elan Vital, which was um, Henri Bergson's word for the life force. And he said, to say that biological progress is explained by the Elan Vital is to, say, is to say that the movement of the train is explained by Elan Locomotive of the engine. In other words, it doesn't really explain anything that way. And here's another example from a play by Moliere called Le Malade Imaginaire. And I'm not going to read this because it's unreadable, um, and because it's no language. It's sort of dog Latin and dog French combined. But here's a kind of translation. And here, the supposedly learned doctor says that opium produces sleep because it has dormitive power. Well, dormir is French for sleep. So he's saying that opium causes sleep because it has the power to produce sleep. It doesn't really explain much of anything. And the third argument is that it is a term that is very easy to junk up. And here, for example, is a salon in day spa called Elan Vital, and they didn't even spell it right for crying out loud. It doesn't have the E in French. But I want to say a word in defense of the guy who coined this term, which is Henri Bergson. And as I said, and as I will explain, this is a category error. Elan Vital was never meant to explain things like metabolism or respiration or anything like that, because it is not an efficient cause at all. Okay, that's the problem. And if you read his book, you know that that's not what he meant. It's not a, an efficient cause. It's something else. And to jump to the punchline, it's a formal cause. Okay, so now um, I'm going to tell you a little bit. Um, let me start my um, answer to all of this by going back to James Joyce's Ulysses. 
and this time it's episode nine. And in this episode, Stephen Dedalus is in the National Library of Ireland, and he is explaining his theory about Shakespeare. That's the setting. So it's all about Shakespeare's plays, and he's explaining it to one of the people he's explaining it to is a poet by the name of A.E., George William Russell. A.E. is a pseudonym, stands for Eon. And once upon a time, Stephen Dedalus borrowed a pound from the older man, A.E., George William Russell. So he gave the first part of his theory. Now he's taking a break, and these are internal thoughts of Stephen Dedalus on the, on the slide. And um, it's peppered with Shakespearean idiom because he's, it's all about Shakespeare. He's thinking about Shakespeare. So he says, how now, Sirrah, that pound he lent you when you were hungry? Marry, I wanted it. Take thou this noble. Go to. You spend most of it in Georgina Johnson's bed, clergyman's daughter, agonbite of inwit. Do you intend to pay it back? Oh, yes. When? Now? Well, no. When then? I paid my way. I paid my way. Steady on. He's from Bayon Point Water, the northeast corner. You owe it. Wait. Five months. Molecules all change. I am other eye. Other eye got pound. Buzz, buzz. But I, entelechy, form of forms, am I by memory because under ever-changing forms. I that sinned and prayed and fasted, a child con me saved from pandies. I, I, and I. I. A-E-I-O-U. Okay, now let's go through this again, and this time I'll explain it. The impecunious Stephen Dedalus borrowed a pound from A.E., claiming hunger, but as was his wont, he spent it instead on his favorite prostitute, Georgina Johnson. And for this, he has agonbite of inwit, which is a term meaning remorse of conscience, happens to be Middle English. Now, he impend, intends to pay A back someday, maybe. He recalls how his sometime boss, Mr. Deasy, um, had berated him for his spendthrift ways. That was earlier in the, ep in the novel, episode two. Um, Deasy said, the proudest boast of any Englishman is to say, I paid my way. But then again, that was Deasy who was a pompous ass. And even worse, he was an orange man, a unionist. Um, so uh, Stephen Dedalus Beyond means is dialect for beyond, and the Boyne Water is an Ulster Protestant folk song commemorating the king, the victory of King William III of Orange over the Catholic King James II at the Battle of Boyne. Okay, that's all sort of beside the point. In other words, by the governing British force, he should pay, but he doesn't care very much about that one way or the other. Um, but even he doesn't find that very convincing. So then he comes up with an absolute brainstorm. He, he devises a clever stratagem. He got the pound five months ago. 
And in the meantime, all his molecules have changed. It was not the current eye who got the pound. It was the other eye from five months ago. And if this is correct, there should be no need for the current eye to repay AE. Now, then he realizes that this stratagem just won't work. Why? He says, but I, Intelliki, form of forms, am I by memory because under ever-changing forms. Now here, Daedalus is playing with the word form. His appearance, this superficial form, let's call it lowercase f form, changes all the time. But, and, but, um, there is something that underlies all the ever-changing forms, lowercase f, and that is the form, the form of forms, entelechy. That's Aristotle's word, and let's call that form with a capital F. As Stephen puts it, the form of forms which underlies all the various ever-changing forms. Now, how does he even know such a thing exists? Um, because we can't weigh it, we can't see it. How does he know it? He knows it by memory. He knows it by memory. He knows that he has memories. There was the eye that um, there was the eye that sinned and prayed and fasted. The eye that was spared pandies when he was a child. You can read about that in Portrait of the Artist as a young man. So memory, memory. He has a continuous memory of himself. He has personhood with a continuing continuous memory of himself. Um, there is. There are many eyes, I, I, and I. The I as a young child, the I as uh, an older um, teenager, and so forth and so on. But they all add up to just one I. And therefore, the conclusion is inevitable. Somehow it adds up to personhood, and what comes with that is moral responsibility. A-E-I-O-U. This is an execrable pun. All good puns are execrable. And... Uh, it tells us that the unity of the form of forms um, is which Stephen knows through a power of the soul, memory entails moral responsibility. Now there's a kind of a funny example of the same kind of thing. Um, there's, uh, this is actually a very important point in medical ethics. Stephen talked about the molecules all changing in five months, but here's a somewhat lighthearted fictional treatment of a rather serious medical ethical question. It's from a novel by Charles fin Finney called The Circus of Dr. Lau. There's a minor character named Frank Tull, who is a man of many artificial parts. Um, he has bifocals, false teeth, a plate in his skull, etc., etc. Today, it might be a heart transplant or a liver transplant. Um, but um, but um, is this man still Frank Tull. And this is actually both Stephen's example and Finney's example are examples of this very ancient philosophical question called the ship of Theseus. And the argument or the question here is, suppose you have a ship and you want to keep it in good shape. So every time a plank rots out, you replace it with a new plank. And eventually you replace all the planks is it still the ship of Theseus, or is it a new ship? What's the answer to that question? Well, if you're Aristotle, this is the answer you give. 
There are four ways to talk about cause. And by the way, he didn't say four types of causes. He was talking about how we talk about cause. They're all related to one another. But the material cause is that out of which something is made. The efficient cause is the primary source of, of the change or rest. For example, an archer shooting an arrow. The formal cause is what the thing is, the definition of the thing. In Greek, tautien anai, what the thing was meant to be. And the final cause is what we would say is the reason for something. And Aristotle's example of it, he said, health is the cause of walking around. What he meant is, why do we walk around that's good for our health? It's the reason for walking around. Now, the key points here are first, that most people nowadays, especially scientists, when they talk about cause, they're talking about the material or the efficient cause. And that's fine, but that's all they mean when they talk about cause. But there are four of them for a reason. And a fuller understanding of causality, because they are interrelated, always, always, always interrelated, is, to ta is that there are four of them and the formal cause is one of them. Um, now, when Aristotle talked about, for example, the statue of Hermes, he said that substances like the statue are the union of form and matter. Now, he meant by matter not what we mean by it, like protons and neutrons and electrons. He meant by matter prime matter or potentiality. And it's impossible to say what it is because it isn't anything until it combines with uh, with Form. It is only the potential to be made. It is the substratum, if you will, that can be made into something when combined with form, to form a thing. So, not just the statue of Hermes, but we can say this about the proton that has two up quarks and one down quark and some gluons tying them together, or for that matter about the quarks themselves, that they too are the union of form and matter. Now we come to Thomas Aquinas, and he said, to seek the nature of the soul, we must premise that the soul is defined as the first principle of life of those things which live. And here's where he said, things that have anima are animata. He goes on and says, lots of things are principles of life. We like having a heart, and we like having eyes, and we like having a brain and kidneys, and a pancreas, but those aren't the first principle. Why not? Because to be the first principle of life, the, the fundamental principle of life, it can't be a body, because it must be a body as such to be the first principle. If, it, if that were not the case, then anybody could be a soul, but it's, that's not the case. Therefore, a body is competent to be a living thing or even a principle of life as such a body, tala corpus. Okay, now that it is actually such a body, it owes to some principle which it's called its act, actuality as opposed to potentiality. Therefore, the soul, which is the first principle of life, is not a body, but the act of a body. Now note that he didn't um, weigh it or look at it or any, measure it in any other way. He postulated as, it as the form which we can never observe directly. And that's a long 
point two, which is in Thomas's epistemology, we don't see forms. We see particulars and in particular ways. Okay. <clears throat> now, um, so, um, so now I'm going to, um, there's a lot more to say about that, and I'm, maybe we can talk about that um, after the uh, talk, but, but we're going to move now to the second part of the talk, which is about Brave New World. And Brave New World is very related to one of the important sources of it, which is Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov. This slide, by the way, Brave New World Revisited, um, Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World in 1932. He came back to it about 35 years later and wrote a book, Brave New World Revisited, to ask himself, what did I get right and what did I get wrong? And that was called Brave New World Revisited. Now, <clears throat> to make a few points, I will perhaps have to simplify, but I hope not too much, uh, by defining a few terms, in particular, scientism and biologism. Scientism is not merely believing in the methods, theories, uh, theories and findings of science. That's not scientism. But it is an epistemological position that says that science is the only source of truth. That's scientism. Biology, biologism rather, is the belief that biology describes life not only accurately, which all biologists believe or they wouldn't be doing biology, but that it defines life completely. It's adequate to define every aspect of life. It does not allow that other sources are valid to describe life and living being, beings. So I'm going to use a couple of awkward terms here, but I think um, someone who believes in scientism isn't just a scientist, so I'll call that person a scientismist. And a, someone who believes in biologism isn't just a biologist, so I'll say that that person is a bio, biolog, biologism, I can't even say it, biologismist, who hold to scientism or biologism, respectively. Now, an example of that, you know what, in the interest of time, I'm simply going to skip this. Um, but I think that biologism and scientism are closely allied to another ism, and that is what unites Dostoevsky and Aldous Huxley, nihilism. Um, so some corollaries of biologism are that life is a mechanism. It has no end, no meaning beyond itself. Try talking to a biologist about teleology someday. Be prepared to defend yourself. Uh, most biologists consider teleology a four-letter word, even though there are nine letters in it. And the corollary of that is that good and evil are just words we use to describe things like functional or non-functional, adaptive or maladaptive, if you're an evolutionary biologist, a selective advantage or disadvantage. So what a biologismist says is that there's only adaptability, survival, propagation of the species or its DNA. I want to pause for just a second and say all of this adaptability, survivability, propagation of DNA, 
begins to sound a little bit like teleology, doesn't it? Hmm. And then there's the idea that, you know, we don't have good and evil, we just have functional or non-functional. And that would make biologism a kind of utilitarianism, which says that the good is the greatest good for the greatest number. But that sounds a little bit circular because we've just denied the categories good and evil, haven't we? So what are we to do? Okay, um, this is a scene from an iconic uh, movie and for the, uh, um, for the um, two people in the universe who uh, haven't seen this point, uh, um, seen this movie, um, uh, I'll say that there's a central character who's called the dude. He's played by Jeff Bridges. And he's been harassed by a techno music group called the Nihilists. And they're also, they also claim to be Nihilists. Uh, for example, they're always saying, we believe in nothing, Lebowski. Um, but in this scene, they're crying that they've been treated unfairly. Now, my point is that if you espouse a doctrine like nihilism, you've also given up any right to complain about any lack of fairness, okay? Because you've jettisoned concepts like good and evil. And are we really sure we want to give up on ideals like fairness or maybe love or justice? Now, let me digress one more second and refer to the problem of evil. When we talk about evil, we often ask the question, which is the question that Ivan Karamazov asked in The Brothers Karamazov, and that is, how can an all-good and all-powerful God allow evil to occur in the world? And it's a very, very good question. And those of you who have read Brothers Karamazov know that Ivan's tirade is very powerful indeed. This quote on top in Latin is from a 5th century author, Boethius, who wrote On the Consolation of Philosophy. And why I show it um, is we, um, we, um, we all know the first part, if God exists, where does evil come from? The important thing that Boethius included in here is the second part. If God does not exist, where does the good come from? How do we define um, the good? And um, so one way that people sometimes try to solve the problem of evil is saying, well, I'll tell you why God allows evil to exist in the world, because there is no God. All right? So that would sound like a solution to the problem of evil, except it really just shifts the problem over to the problem of the good. Because if God does not exist, if there are only atoms colliding blindly in space, where does good come from? Or does it not exist? Okay, so coming back to, so this is the question you always want to ask nihilists, whether of the, uh, the Big Lebowski or elsewhere. If God does not exist, how are you defining the good? How do you define the good? Okay. So now coming back to Huxley's novel, I mainly want to speak about one character who's the man in charge, basically. And his name is Mustafa Mond, and he is the resident world controller for Western Europe, which 
Huxley being English, of course, that was the part of the world he was most uh, concerned with. Um, and he is clearly and explicitly modeled after Dostoevsky's character, the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov. Um, a few years ago, oops, I did Google Images for Brave New World, and this is what I got. A lot of explicit images of human cloning and embryos. This is kind of an interesting aside. Anyway, um, Brave New World has a lot to do with human cloning, but of course, back in 1932, they didn't have that concept at all. When there was cloning at all, it was, you know, runners of strawberry plants. Those are actually clones of the root. So happens. Neither here nor there. But in any case, Huxley didn't have any idea about cloning the way we think about it in 1932. So he invented a fictional process by which human beings would be made in a laboratory, and he called it the Bokanovsky process. And it's an utterly cold laboratory process. And the intent of this process, ostensibly, was to get uniform products, good uniform products. Well, that's not what actually happened in the novel. Because of random chance events, noise in the system, as it were, um, what they got was gradations. And that turned into classes, or rather, castes, alphas, betas, gammas, deltas, and epsilons in the society, and the need for a whole propaganda machinery to make everyone in the society think that their caste was the best and most important. Um, I think you um, probably know who this sheep was. Many years later, um, Dolly the sheep was born, and she was a clone, an actual ovine clone through a process called somatic cell nuclear transfer. And I'm not saying this should or shouldn't have been done, but this is what was done. And then, a few years later, 2017, um, there was this headline, um, and, um, you know, Chinese scientists cloned monkeys using method that created Dolly the sheep. And as a sometime theologian, I had to chuckle a little bit at the use of the word created. Thomas Aquinas reserves the word created for what God does. He would have used the word made or factum. Anyway, um, um, so coming back to Huxley's novel, the title of it is a very ironic quotation from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, in the play, um, Miranda is awed by what she sees, but in Huxley's novel, the line is used very, very ironically. There's a character named John who grew up in a kind of exile because he was born the old-fashioned way. He and his mother were exiled to America. And so in the novel, he comes to England for the first time, and upon seeing the technological process, progress, this is what he says. He says, oh, one more thing about John the Savage. He learned to read, and the only book at his disposal was the complete works of Shakespeare. So everything he says, practically, was a quote from Shakespeare. You've got to buy the premise. Anyway, he comes to Europe, and he says, oh, wonder um, how beauteous mankind is, oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Well, as I say, this is very, very ironic. 
Um, remember to remember this is this uh, the um, the novel explains um, um, that um, when he comes to England and he's first wonderstruck by it, um, he grows disillusioned with it. And so this is not a utopian novel. This is a dystopian novel. It's a satire and a dystopian novel. You have to remember where the word utopia comes from. It comes from Thomas More's book of that name. And in Greek, it means roughly, there ain't no such place. No place. Okay. So, um, here's the dilemma when it comes to technology. We not only want the technology, we really need it. And I caution you, don't take any simple yes-no responses to technology. It's a complicated topic, inherently so. And the part of wanting it and needing it is from Francis Bacon, um, the Baconian anthem, conquer nature and relieve man's estate. We want to cure diseases. We want to fix the environment. And there are very good reasons to do so. And yet it's all a little bit scary sometimes. And this is from an article by Leon Cass. Human nature itself lies on the operating table, ready for alteration, for eugenic and psychic enhancement, for wholesale redesign. For anyone who cares about preserving our humanity, the time has come to pay attention. Well, that was 2001. This is 22 years later. And so we have this problem. If human beings can be altered without limit, will such a thing as human nature exist anymore? Is the term human nature or will it become obsolete? And coming back to the brave new world, the brave new world was set up because of all the horror. And in particular, a horrific, basically nuclear war. Again, this was before nuclear weapons, but I think we can read that into it. The model of the Brave New World, including the process of making babies, was Henry Ford's assembly line, explicitly. And all the characters in the Brave New World use the word Ford in place of God. Ford bless us. Ford be, Ford, um, you know, and so forth. Now, the achievements of this Brave New World are that disease is gone, aggression is gone, War is gone, anxiety is gone, suffering, guilt, envy, grief, they're all gone. Sort of. That's an exaggeration. How was this achieved? It was achieved by genetic manipulation, a psychoactive drug called Soma, and a lot of high-tech amusements. So basically, as the Romans used to say, bread and circuses. Now, in spite of eliminating all those ills, and getting us what we all aim for and strive for, this is dystopia, not utopia. The costs are shallowness, homogenization, debasement, and uncommitted, unhappy lives. And this is the death of the soul. And here is Dostoevsky with the Grand Inquisitor, a picture of it. And here is a quote from the Grand Inquisitor, who basically says the same thing as Mustafa moaned, with us everyone will be happy, they will no longer rebel or destroy each other, as in your freedom. The setting here in the grand, the chapter called the Grand Inquisitor 
is that Christ returns to earth during the Spanish Inquisition. And he has a conversation with the Grand Inquisitor. He performs a few miracles, then the Grand Inquisitor arrests him. And it's not really a conversation. Really, the Grand Inquisitor speaks to Christ. And this is one of the things he says. Um, with your freedom, Christ, things went very, very badly. The whole idea is that faith requires freedom. If it's compelled, it isn't faith. Okay. <clears throat> now, um, okay. Now, um, last big concept I want to um, introduce. So both the Grand Inquisitor and Mustafa Mond um, believe that human beings are such poor, weak creatures that they can't handle freedom of the will. All right? So here's where I want to introduce the term transcendentals. This is a philosophical concept, and the word refers, let me give a definition of it, it is the universal property of all being in the world. Now, um, I think probably all of you know, and this is the Thomistic Institute, so I hope you know that the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas has a lot to do with being. Um, and in the world, in the world, being is all divided up, okay? We have the good, we have the true, we have the beautiful, and so forth. Um, but in contrast, in God, being, existence, is completely simple. God is completely simple. That's one of the main tenets of uh, Thomas's uh, metaphysics. In God, all of being is a unity, seamlessly interwoven in ways we can't possibly understand. So, on Earth, we have transcendentals, and these are universal properties of all being. So, you may have read in Augustine or in Thomas Aquinas how the good and the and being are somehow interrelated or interconvertible or um, um, identical in some respect. But if we focus on the last three of these, uh, which are the ones that um, we're most used to, we can say that all of being is good, all of being is true, all of being is beautiful. Now, um, and that's a gross oversimplification. And I have this slide that I'm not going to read because it has way too many words on it, but it is more about the transcendentals, and I would love to talk more about the transcendentals, but we're not going to do that in the interest of time. What I'm going to do is use the concept of the transcendentals to analyze Brave New World. Um, because I think at the heart of the Brave New World is an attack on the transcendentals, which is an attack in an indirect way on God. Okay, so near the end of the novel, Mustafa Mond explains the basis of this new world to John the Savage. Okay, John wants to leave civilization. He wants to go back to America um, or something. Um, he's grown terribly disaffected with the whole thing. Um, so Mond argues first, and I'm going to go through each one, first, Shakespeare is obsolete and obscene. Get rid of Shakespeare and all other art. We should all be low lives. We should all have high-tech, low-life, unthinking amusements. Beauty and art such as Shakespeare 
are not just obsolete, they're obscene, okay? Which really means subversive. The next one is a little bit surprising because he attacks truth as a value. Um, much of the world state rests on technology, right? Um, and here's where we have to make a distinction between science and technology. Of course they are related, but technology is about doing, whereas science is about knowing. And in that respect, science has much more to do with religion than technology, than it has to do with technology. But Mond says, explains it this way, science and religion are subversive. Every discovery in pure science is potentially subversive. Even science must sometimes be treated as a possible enemy. Yes, even science. As far as the good is concerned, they have eliminated all morality. Huxley happens to focus on sexual morality, but it doesn't have to be that, and he does touch on others. Um, aliquid is a Latin for something, and what it really means is if you see something, you're defining relationality. I and you, for example. If I see you, we're talking about relations. Um, so aliquid, that um, transcendental is about relationships, and families have been eliminated from the brave new world. Unum, all things are things because they are one thing, identifiable in some way as one thing. There is no individualism in the brave new world. And finally, res means thing. Um, there is, and um, a thing is a thing by virtue of having the essence of that thing. And I'll give my favorite example. If I ask you, those of you who are biologists who say, what is a dog? You will say it's a quadruped, it is a mammal, it has hair, it has a wet nose, it has a wagon tail. Okay, I'm gonna show you this animal. It was in an accident, it only has three legs now. It has a cold, so its nose is dry. And as a result of those things, it's no longer wagging its tail. And it happens to be a hairless breed of animal. Is this a dog? Oh yeah, sure. But I thought you said a dog was this, that, and the other. No, a dog is a dog because it has a doggy essence. And again, we cannot define essences. essences. This is one of the principles of Thomas's epistemology. Again, that's another thing I'll be happy to go into in more detail. But, um, but the ultimate example of rest, the ultimate reality, is God in Thomas Aquinas. And when you deny God, you are denying the ultimate in reality. And this more or less is where I want to leave you. Um, I have a couple more slides, uh, just uh, sort of an envoi. Those of you who are into David Foster Wallace, An Infinite Jest. Any of you have read that book. Um, you may recognize this particular meteorological phenomenon, which is called Brockengespenst in German. And in English, it's called the Brocken specter, or a mountain specter. The Brocken is the Brocken, excuse me. Not mispronouncing my German. It is the highest peak in the Hartz Mountains of Germany. And a Brockengespenst is this very magnified shadow um, cast opposite 
um, cast upon clouds opposite of the sun's direction. And it is often surrounded by halos, as in this picture, which are called glories. Um, and in fact, this has been a phenomenon defined very carefully in the physics of it. Um, it, is, it occurs when uniformly sized tiny water droplets um, in clouds um, ref refract and backscatter light. In addition to infinite jest, which makes a lot of use of this phenomenon, it is also, the word is also used in Thomas Pynchon's novel, Gravity's Rainbow, and long before that, in Goethe's Faust. Faust, when he's going up to uh, the witch's Sabbath, sees this Brockengespenst, and that's probably the most ancient and venerable of the uh, uses of it. Now, um, in Infinite Jest, there are two characters named Marat and Steeply who converse throughout the novel on a mountain outcropping outside of Tucson, Arizona, and they are black back backlit by a Brockengespenst. They function something like a, um, a Greek drama in the novel. They're, they comment on everything in the novel. Now I'm going to give my interpretation of these figures, and that is they represent the human being as imago dei, made in the image of God, so that they are magnified far beyond their physical size. Um, this is the opposite of what I showed you about Mustafa Mond and the Grand Inquisitor, who are, and also, by the way, Ivan Karamazov, who are always putting down human beings as not being fit for freedom. Um, and um, the, uh, the, in the novel, the character of Ivan Karamazov gives his tirade about a god who would allow children to suffer. And the curious thing about the novel is that Dostoevsky never answers Ivan's tirade in kind. Ivan is a great rhetorician. His speech is very moving. And he never answers, Dostoevsky never answers it in kind. How he does answer it is in the lives, the lived lives of two characters, Father Zosima and Ivan's brother Alyosha, who is a novice in the monastery in which Father Zosima is the elder. And so this is a quote from um, Father Zosima, how we can know that God exists. How do we know it? One of the characters comes to him, plagued by doubt, and he says, you can know it, and here's how. Try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more you will be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of the soul. And if you reach complete selflessness in the love of your neighbor, then undoubtedly you, you will believe and no doubt will ever be able to enter your soul. This has been tested. It is true. Now I will add, uh, by way of gloss on this, that active love is specific and particular. It's as opposed to abstract and general love, which uh, the Grand Inquisitor and Mustafa Mond and Ivan Karamazov have in abundance. But that's not what Zosim is talking about. 
He's talking about active and specific love of your neighbor. And I think that this is also a response that can be given to Mustafa Mon and the Brave New World. Technologically, technological endeavor is not simply to be discarded, yes, yet it must also be practiced with love or it can destroy us. And I will leave you with these two quotes, um, one from David Foster Wallace's novel and the other one from, you know, that guy Augustine. Um, Choose with care, says one of the characters, Marat. You are what you love, no. You are completely and only what you would die for without, as you say, the thinking twice. He's French-Canadian and his English is a little bit um, faulty. You, Monsieur Hugh Steeply, you would die without thinking for what? It's a good question. Now, this is a very Augustinian position that Steeply takes in the novel. And here's, so here is the quote, a quote from Augustine. Once and for all, a short precept is given thee. Love and do what thou wilt. Whether thou hold thy peace through love, hold thy peace. Whether thou cry out, through love, cry out. Whether thou correct, through love, correct. Whether thou spare, through love, do thou spare. Let the root of love be within. Or of this root can nothing spring but what is good. And I would add, of science, of, te of technology, if you do that, do that with love as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.